Hello and welcome to episode 14 of the Precision Microcast. Josh and I will be talking about the tool room, looking at some interesting Swiss metrology companies, and we'll finish with our precision problems in the shop this week. So on this episode of the Precision Microcast, we're talking about the tool room and from my perspective, I've got a very fresh, new, uh, let's say, green outlook on the tool room. And Adam here has um, a little bit more of a tempered or uh, mature view of it. Seasoned, yeah, that's a good way of putting it, view of the tool room. So uh, at my stage in my career, I'm uh, helping set up a tool room in our workshop. Uh, everything from machinery to processes to sort of capability, knowledge, uh, as well as people and uh, sort of manpower expertise. And Adam has spent a large portion of his career in in the tool room. So before we get too deep, um, what has your tool room experience been, Adam? Where have you been in the tool room? Uh, superb, I was in the tool room and then the can tool shop i worked at before superb they were kind of a mix of machine shop and tool and die shop the tool and die elements happening in a more tool room environment it was literally a physical room and that's where i was um so yeah those two places and then before that i was just doing the large part machining but that does the two tool die shop jobs i have do account for the majority of the years i've been on and employed and then my shop, I guess you could call it tool room, but uh, I do lack some of the support equipment a lot of tool rooms have. That that has opened like a whole set of tangents that would be really interesting to de- uh, deep dive down. And one of those is uh, what defines a tool room? Um, and how do you differentiate a tool room from a production facility, for example? Well, uh, tool room is usually doing stuff to support production. Uh, Toolmakers usually have an attitude, but at the end of the day, uh, they're there to prop up production, not the other way around. Um, and so a tool room can really, really vary greatly depending on what the production company is doing. Um, extrusion dies, tool room might just be a wire EDM and a grinder. Uh, if you're doing deep draw stamping, they may not even have a wire EDM. It might be cylindrical grinders and lathes. And so it really, really depends on what the company makes as to what they'll have machinery-wise in their tool room. But usually the end result is a room which can maintain production via die repair or tooling repair. Sometimes it's new tooling components, but by and large, you're seeing that go out to specialty precision component shops. And the tool rooms are are essentially just to keep things moving. That interplay between making new parts and new tools uh, and repair is really interesting because they're two very separate trades. Um, Doing repair is is like a almost, it's, it's not quite in word for word in this analogy, but... It's almost like a mechanic servicing a car versus an OEM making the car. Yeah, and at Superb, uh, which relatively small company, and at their peak, I think there was only 10 toolmakers. Most of the time, it was a little lower than that. 
they actually had two separate tool rooms. One was service and repair. The other was new component build. And mm-hmm. so even even a small company sees that division and the type of tool room work they do, I think. But uh, most small companies won't bring that new component build in-house. They'll, they'll outsource it. I've also seen a really strong interplay between design offices and tool rooms, uh, especially places where they're making sort of, let's say, the OEM um, parts or the, the complete tools in-house. Um, f- from my perspective, that's, that's probably where uh, my company or where I work fits in the most. We are finding the problems and um, examining the solutions and then executing on those solutions. And there's a really strong feedback loop between people that are running the machines and people that are designing the parts. Sometimes they're the exact same person even. So when James, for example, is making a part and he's designing at the same time all to fix a problem driven by production, um, I think that to me is a really good example of that side of the tool room. Did you see that a lot in Superb? Uh, Yeah. Um, They usually had uh, a design review at multiple stages of the design and a tool maker or two would come up and sit in on it. And, you know, we weren't, we weren't going to tell the engineer how to do their job, but if we saw something, <laughs> something glaring, uh, we would speak up. Um, usually, you know, we, we don't complain too much about a part. If it's going to be hard to make, it's just going to be hard to make. Mm. Um, because, it kind of creates this real bickery feedback loop if you try to make everything better in your eyes as to how to make it. Mm. And so sometimes you just, you know, you, you embrace it being a hard part and you make it. And that's, I, I go both ways on it. Um, some of my customers all get a part in. I thought, boy, if they'd just put a corner radius in there, that'd go a lot quicker. <laughs> but having spent enough time in the design side, I also know, that if I were to email and ask them to put a corner radius in, mm. wait for them to remodel and revise the, the print with that corner radius, send the prints and the new files back to me, um, any any time savings by having that corner radius would be lost. Mm. So, um, yeah, uh, you sometimes you just suck it up and do it. That's, that's an interesting point. Um... Often things like that are sort of detrimental in production. If you've got a difficult to machine feature or something that's going to take quite a lot of cycle time in production, you want to eliminate that as quickly as possible and as early as possible. Whereas in the tool room, it sounds like it's not as critical almost. <laughs> I've never been in a tool room where at some point in my career there had not been a slow time. You know, at some point you inevitably end up painting shelves or something. Uh, And so Mm. you only need to go as fast as the project's bandwidth needs. And a lot of times the tool room is not the Mm. limiting factor. So, you know, say a new project comes in and it's going to require a new press and a new die and a new feed unit. As long as the die is built before the press arrives... uh, (laughs) that's as fast as you know that project needs to go throughput wise so um mm-hmm. yeah it is kind of a more relaxed atmosphere sometimes but then there's sometimes where 
you know, you're very close to delaying the customer because the dies broke down and it needs repaired and mm. you're under the gun. So it, it cuts both ways. So in your shop that you're currently running in your business, um, how much of the tool room do you think, like not only in the process, but also in the mentality, how much of that do you think um, creeps in and plays a part in your business? Uh, I'd say a, uh, probably not a, a healthy amount <laughs> um, more of an unhealthy amount uh, so for the most part I kind of consider myself like a precision component shop mm-hmm. I don't I don't really want to develop tools too much these days um, that just it's too nebulous I want I want parts I've quoted and I know exactly how much I'll get paid for them I know exactly mm. roughly how long it's going to take um, and so a lot of that that's why I don't have the tool room equipment because I can build around the process that I have. But I do get the occasional thing that is more tool room, a uh, lot of development. I'm seeing some R&D work, which typically would mm. get shoved off to a tool room. Mm. And that's just the kind of thing where you need access to a wide swath of equipment. Mm. You really don't know how you're going to make it because your plan sometimes halfway through the project changes. Mm. So I'd say 20, 25% of what I do kind of has that riffing kind of tool room vibe where you're just uh, walking through the shop using the equipment and Mm. part comes out the other end. (laughs) That's, yeah. I wish it was that simple. (laughs) Just walk around the shop. Yeah. And at, the longer you hold the part, the more complete it gets. <laughs> but, I mean, sometimes I always viewed the tool room as like an operation. You know, like, okay, we're going we're gonna to send this to laser cut, then we're going to send it to tool room, then we're going to send it to plating. Mm. Because tool room, it might be like 10, 15 things happening. You know, it's going yeah. to get some milling, take it over to the drill press, do some chamfering, uh, you know, bead blast this. And so from from a process standpoint, we just always kind of uh, is like this black box where parts went in and things mm. got done to them and out the other side they came. Yeah, I, I really want to chew that um, that point up. Uh, and it's and it's it's I was as I was doing the prep for this episode, I was trying to figure out what to call this. And it was like the the enigma of the tool room. My first thought was the the fetishization of the tool room. But I thought that was a little bit too um, uh, too direct. So the enigma is is the second best word that I got, and it's very much that black box where, in my experience and what I've seen locally here in Sydney, is that a lot of companies have a part or a process or something, um, and they just send it to a place and they get it back. They pay some money and they get it back, and they don't really understand what's happened. But often it's not just a CNC mill and often it's not just a lathe, but a wide v- variety of different machining operations. Sometimes it's lapping, grinding, a combination of CNC milling and EDM and so on and so on. And it just builds. And it's far, in my opinion, it's far less about the machines or even the process, but it's about the uh, attitude to just get things done or problem solve and I think when investors get their quarterly report um, off the ASX or the NASDAQ or whatever you're trading on, there's usually an expense that just says R&D. 
And all of those things get just lumped into R&D. Um, and that that's also a different, uh, I think at least, it's a slightly different type of tool room. It's almost like an R&D hub where it's very centered around uh, specific industry problems. Like the tool room that you're describing is centered around um, production stamping, which is a completely mm-hmm. different sort of a tool room to a medical device company tool room and so on and so on. But um, yeah, th- yeah, the enigma is, is so fascinating to me. It's a, it's a one size all kind of term to describe, you know, not core production. Maybe it's more R&D. Maybe it's more maintenance. Uh, I've seen mm. some tool rooms which looked like a maintenance repair shop. Um, mm. You know, they didn't have any tooling per se at the factory. They just had like robots and assembly lines and and uh, they did more more welding and drill press work than mm. they did grinding. And and so, yeah, it just it, it really gets roughly applied to a lot of different things. But, um, you yeah, know, most places I've worked you do kind of pick up like some new product R&D in the tool room simply because it's mm. just much easier to give it to the tool room than it is like somebody on a production mill. Much much less yeah. di- disruptive, I guess. Yeah, I think that point's also quite interesting how often tool rooms in large companies are actually in, in combination with the design office, let's say, but they're often the beating heart of the new idea creation uh, or ideation. And it's um, that's also quite interesting because the problems behind these products get figured out and solved and then uh, reiterated and iterated again and so on all in one sort of process. Like that, that's often uh, not highlighted in general industry where, yeah, it's sort of, becomes a catch-all for for all the problems that no one ever sees yeah a lot of times quoting something for stamping if it's a obscure stamping operation something that doesn't typically get done to that material the tool room will set up like a prototype tool maybe mm. it's in a schmidt press or maybe you have like a dedicated mm. die that just takes one insert and and then you use laser cut blanks and you you perform the bending or the draw operation um, and there, there's a fair amount of that where you're you're actually developing how it's going to be stamped mm. prior to designing the die. Um, but again, that's more the stamping realm. But uh, yeah, so sometimes just R&Ding the manufacturing process is what tool rooms get stuck with too. My father-in-law, Roger, is his name. Um, he He did his aircraft maintenance... Uh, apprenticeship in a tool room in uh, a company called Qantas in the early 60s and worked there for 14 years Uh, and his experience in the tool room was quite interesting and enlightening and I talked to him many many times about it in in fact he loves talking about it Um, (laughs) um, his experience is all about sort of maintenance and repair uh, although they still had all of that support equipment that we sort of touched on. Um, and then I've been through heaps of watchmaking tool rooms in Switzerland, and they also have a bunch of support equipment, uh, but they do completely different type of work, types of work. Often it's making jigs for polishing things, jigs for 
um, uh, the production for CNC milling and, and, and turning and so on. Uh, and then you have a tool room or a quasi tool room like yours, Adam, and then uh, a quasi tool room like mine. And I want to try to find what's the common thread between all these different tool rooms in terms of equipment. You, you, you know what it is, Josh? What is it's it? It's idle spindles. <laughs> and I'm, I'm serious. It's, there's usually free bandwidth in the tool room. Yeah. yeah there's, yeah. there's a lot of equipment not doing anything. And okay, that's yep. to an extent by design, but, uh, every tool room I've gone into, there's usually not many chips getting made. I love that. Um, and that's why, why, that's why they're so effective. Mm. Uh, you need to mill something, go into the tool room. 100% chance there's an open mill. So, <laughs> I mean, look, I was expecting an answer like, oh, this machine from this producer, but idle spindle is a fantastic point. Yeah. But yeah, I mean, that's, that's just the whole thing is it's bandwidth for ideas or problems to be solved. So in the last, let's say, 10, 20 years, I mean, take a peek at how, however long the time span needs to be. What do you think the progression of modern day tool rooms has been? Uh, not great. <laughs> um, I think uh, to a lot of companies, unless unless they have a very forward outlook on R and D and stuff like that, the tool room's kind of a problem. And there's been a lot of ways to avoid that burden of a tool room. Uh, logistics has improved greatly. Uh, you can you can push a lot of what you used to have a tool room for out onto suppliers now, and mm. so I think a lot of shops are looking to reduce or eliminate their tool rooms. I mean, I know several tool rooms which are skeletons of what they once were, and basically the guys that are there now are like precision mechanics. You know, they're swapping parts, and uh, not a lot mm. of machines are getting ran. Yeah, I've, I can parallel that experience as well. Um, I'm obviously quite young in the trade, just starting out, but all the stories that I've heard from uh, James and all the other people I interact with in sort of manufacturing in Sydney point to that trend where shops specialize in a certain process. And in many ways, I've, I've noticed that with the contract manufacturing side of what we do is that we've become is sort of like a tool room for hire where you have problems that or companies have problems um, that require a tool room that require the vast array of machines or the specialized processes or the, the knowledge behind the tool maker and instead of building that in-house they farm it out now obviously there's a danger for that there's a risk but I also see that there's actually quite a big growth potential for companies to specialize in something and get varied, uh, sorry, work from varied uh, customers. Yeah, um, just looking at you know the type of customers I do that tool room type stuff for, I've I've gone the gamut from like appliances to uh, to medical devices, uh, consumer goods, and that's all in the past six months. And it's all, none of it's been mm. component manufacturing per se. It's, we have this thing and we, we need to make it a little different, but we don't know where to start. And mm. so there's usually some back and forth mm. with their designers and here's what I can do. Here's what I can't. And, but uh, 
it's uh it's challenging it's hard to account 100 percent for the time involved uh, a lot of times there's there's mm. some meetings that by the end of the project you thought eh, I, I i probably spent more time talking about that part than making it maybe i need to adjust how i bill for you know <laughs> consultation um but yeah. uh that it's just um it's a it's a little different to to charge for than straight up component manufacturing i kind of struggle to get my arms around it sometimes mm. yeah it's very difficult to quote um i think the development that goes often unaccounted for in commercial tool rooms where you are just paying for payroll and not at like a shop rate per se uh, internally um that often goes missing um when you farm work out and I've noticed in my experience that you have to get really, really good at um, guessing the best way to make something and sort of going with it. You have to be like 90% sure in your first guess to fall within, a, within, the, within your initial quote. Um, and the best customers I have understand that it's, there's still that 10% left over that you know it didn't work out as planned. They rely on the fact that I get it right nine out of 10 times, but they're prepared to, you know, journey on that development as well. Um, yeah, it's, it's quite interesting because the times where you get it wrong are often the times where it's like the most, in my, in, yeah, as I said, in my experience, like the most depressing, like you, you banked on this operation working just right, but you didn't account for this thing that you, did, you couldn't have accounted for or so on. Um, but when it does succeed, even after those times where it failed maybe once or twice or even 10 times, uh, the feeling is a lot more gratifying than the work that you get where you're just you know, making 500 of something. Um, have you noticed that as well? No. <laughs> uh. <laughs> No, I, 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 I really just hate development. Um, okay. I'm the kind of person who needs like a goal line. Uh -huh. And when I cross it, I don't want to see another goal line. Like, okay. it's like, yay, the race is done. Uh, so, And if you needed any more convincing of how green and fresh <laughs> I am to the industry and how mature and tempered Adam is, well, I'm not sure what else we can give you. No, I just, I remember developing a, a line of equipment for battery manufacturing. And one of the guys I was working with was like real bitter about it. And uh, I was talking to him a bit. He goes, I just hate the development. And uh, he goes, there's, there's mm. so much less satisfaction in it. Like we need to build this machine. You put everything together and it's built. And uh, he goes, and then you're going to spend the next three weeks messing with a corner radii on a bender, you know, or something. And, uh, it's just time versus what you accomplish in that development stages. It's, mm -hmm. uh, it's not quite as rosy of a ratio as when you're building. But. Yeah, that's true. So switching gears, um, the machine side of the tool, I guess this is the sort of the juicy bit. Um, but in your ideal tool room, what would you, what would you see? What kind of machines would you see? Um, I don't know. Like I said, it really depends on the work you're doing, but uh, usually some kind of precision element is for for tooling is always needed. Um, 
it's it's it, it's extremely nebulous, Josh. Um, but <laughs> I mean, I've been in tool rooms that had uh, a, a really nice manual mill and a nice manual lathe, and that's it. And I've been in some that had mm-hmm. the world's finest grinding equipment. So uh, you could do some pretty nice stuff on a lathe, and you could hold as tight a tolerances as a grinder in some cases. So if that's works for you, I guess that works for you. Um, but usually there is an element of manual machinery. And then there's all the support equipment, sandblasters, bench grinders, belt sanders, all that kind of stuff. That's usually ubiquitous. Uh, no matter what they're doing, there's there's some kind of uh, appliance they can walk up to and do something to a piece of metal with. And that's where I'm a little light. I wouldn't mind more of that stuff, but uh, you, you, you kind of look like if I get the 10 little pieces of support equipment I want, I could just get another CNC machine, which I can charge out a lot more per hour with than I could all that little support equipment stuff. And so that's kind of a back and forth I have a lot. Yeah, I found that uh, in the process of setting up a workshop to make watches, you buy the key equipment, the CNC, like the CNC machines, for example, and the literally the next thing after the CNC milling machine is support equipment, so like a manual lathe, uh, or an instrument maker's lathe in, in my case, and then the sandblasting cabinet, the heat treating oven. Um, in many ways, the surface grinder for us was a piece of support equipment. It wasn't a key uh, key piece of equipment. Um, we have a planetary tumbling machine uh, that, you know, it it serves only one one task, which is to support the production of screws and other polished, um, fine polished turned parts. So, yeah, the support equipment's really fascinating because it, in my, in my opinion, it shows the industry. Um, I've seen a lot of uh, like laser welders, for example, in the in the medical industry. Yeah, and that's something I wouldn't mind, actually, is a uh, for more mold and die repair. But uh, boy, those suckers are pricey. <laughs> yeah. That's. That's another one of those. You could just buy a, a really nice piece of equipment that you could have running every day, every hour. Mm. Or you could buy this laser welder you use a couple times a week. Yeah. Yeah, that's definitely true. Um, for us, uh, in, the, in the watchmaking industry, there's probably two core pieces of uh, support equipment, which is like a instrument maker's lathe or a clock maker's lathe or a watchmaker's lathe, I guess, uh, varied terms. But that looks very much like a Shoblin 102. Uh, sometimes you could substitute that for a Shoblin 70 if you're getting to the smallest, like smaller work. But fundamentally, they're pretty much the same concept of a lathe. No carriage, um, just a top and a cross slide. And it often gets treated as like a kinematic frame rather than a lathe. You can do cylindrical grinding on it. You can do milling on it. You can do, um, you can use the main spindle as a dividing head. You can use the, the milling spindle as a dividing head. You can uh, just create these setups that often would have required many different types of machines. And the counterpart to that in mill format would be something like an Asiera F1 or uh, maybe even a Sixus, which is you know, pretty much the same machine. 
And again, you treat that as a kinematic frame where you can put a horizontal spilling, a sp a spindle in, um, in the machine. You can use it as a, uh, a f fine drill. Um, and then in my case, if you really don't care about the machine, use it as a lapping machine or some, something silly like that. So um, did you see that sort of uh, interplay or sort of uh, universality in the tool room um, with the decals you were running, for example? No, I mean, the decals, we use the horizontal spindle quite a lot for side holes. And I liked them for squaring. Mm -hmm. I had a fixture. It was like a rib that ran parallel with the y-axis. So if you put a like a die shoe up there that was, you know, rough sawn and milled your first face, you could then rotate it 90 degrees up against that rib. Mm. And it had a relieved corner, so any burr that might be there from the milling would sit down in the corner and, you know, and then you could just toe clamp it down and mill the next face. And so with that little rib fixture and the horizontal spindle, you could square up big blocks really, really quickly. And um, so the, the horizontal spindle was invaluable, in my opinion. But uh, I don't know. We didn't do too much crazy, you know. Some of the weird stuff we did do with them is <laughs> we would uh, if we, we would have like a low-volume job that needed material slit coil-wise to a very specific width. Mm. And we might only need like 500 feet of it. And we would, uh, we would usually mill a channel into a block and uh to to receive the material and then put like a top plate on it and then kind of plunge the end mill down into that fixture mm. to set the width and then we would literally hand feed through <laughs> that strip of material and the end mill would kind of like um trying to think of the woodworker piece like of a equipment table. i think a jointer oh yes yep 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 and the the end mill would remove material from the side of the strip and because it was kind of sandwiched in this fixture, uh, it didn't really flash any burr. Mm. But uh, <laughs> we found the quickest way to do it was let the end mill climb cut. <laughs> and so it's more or less feeding itself. And then you just got to kind of keep up with it. Uh, that's funny. Uh, at one point, we, put, we went out into the stamping floor and grabbed a spare uh, uh, feed unit. So it was... Uh, <laughs> It was automatically feeding material in. Uh, we we're like, that's pretty cool. But it kind of got into like a runaway loop where it kept feeding faster and faster. So we had to slow her down a bit. But, oh, that's funny. That's really good. But uh, that's about the most obscure stuff I've ever done on a mill. But yeah, the in our world, like, kind of the grinder sees a lot of stuff. Mm. And so you do some weird stuff on a grinder. Um, like we have uh, Sopco collet adapters, so we could put we can grab stuff on our grinder spindles with collets. Oh, that's nice. And so you you see a bunch of weird like you know quarter inch burr bits or something doing doing something you probably shouldn't be doing on a grinder, but <laughs> the grinders have that same kinematic frame quality as the mm. the shoblin you were describing. Just keep adding accessories. Absolutely, yeah, and I think the the ultimate version of that is something like the WS11 where it's all about the accessories and all about the setups and doing the sort of most unique work. Um, I've never run one. I've only seen them in Switzerland and 
uh, sort of lusted over them on YouTube, but that just seems like the pinnacle to me. There's one for sale and not far from here, just over the border in Pennsylvania last year. It was a pretty reasonable price, and I was considering it, but I ended up going with the, the new grinder. And uh, I don't know, I'm still kind of kicking myself because it's no longer <laughs> for sale. But that, I mean, those are rare machines in Europe, and to see one relatively near for sale mm. in America, I'll probably not see that again. So, so, just imagine all the billable hours you could have had on the WS11. Dozens. <laughs> um, one question I actually had for you was uh, in one of our chats a long time ago, you mentioned um, using a decal as a jig grinder or a jig borer. Yeah, I've used them uh, with boring heads, and Deckel did make a jig grinding head for them. Um, it, the jig grinding head was was not well loved, from what I understand. But I've I've used them in boring format. Um, depends on the decal, I guess would be how I phrase that. Uh, the vertical spindle on a lot of decals aren't built for ultra precision. They're built to be very compact and take enormous loads. And to do that, they they use needle bearings near the bottom of the spindle. And so you could do things like put a 100 millimeter face mill in them and bury the cut. Uh, you know, they're just really, really stout spindle. But there is some radial clearance on those needle bearings. And as a result, when you try to bore a hole with one of those spindles, it's not the most round hole in the world. It's not as good as a spindle using angular contact bearings. So yeah, keep that in mind. But now the I think the not for the size machine I ran, but for some of the smaller like the FP2 series machines, I think they did have a dedicated boring head or a boring spindle, which was uh, angular contact bearings instead. But it was it was very light duty. But th there's also some issues with the way the decal x-axis works. As that table traverses from side to side, on a new machine, it's not a big deal. But on an older machine, it starts to tilt, kind of like a seesaw, because it's so cantilevered off of the, the z-axis. And so if you're using, you know, the, the extent of the travels and you bore a hole, then go to the opposite end of the x-axis and bore a hole, uh, they, may, they may be skewed away from one another angular they may not they might not be parallel post holes and it, it really depends on the quality of the machine condition so but the largest decals like the fp5 and up decal actually subbed out to another company and they went to a different system for the x-axis to eliminate that because as you scale up that design to like over over 500 millimeters x travel it just gets to be a bigger and bigger problem. That makes sense. I've always been fascinated with um, how powerful that horizontal spindle is. And I think you've posted a few videos of you doing that work when you were back working in Suburb. And those, uh, yeah, like squaring blocks, it just seems like a really, really good way of doing it. Outside of the uh, Amada machines or whatever they're called that square up all the Misumi blocks, it's not a far shot. <laughs> oh, yeah. No, I, you know, it's a, it's a good way to do things. And I kind of I kind of go back and forth, like, should I get a 
get a setup mm. to square material in house like a plate saw and a horizontal mill or and I just instead of uh instead of being so reliant on material suppliers kind of control my own destiny in that regard but uh at, at the moment I kind of look at it as just mm. being a lot of unnecessary expense and I'll let somebody else handle that for me so thank you for listening to our really long ramble about the tool room and everything that's associated with it um this is a pretty big topic and we only poked at certain aspects of it uh so i'm sure it will make its rounds again in future episodes especially as uh we both expand our machines and capabilities and support equipment Um, i'm sure we'll return to it For this next segment, Josh and I will be looking at some obscure Swiss metrology companies and then highlighting and bringing some awareness to them. Josh, uh, which of these companies do you want to start with? Um, I want to start with uh, Isoma. We, mm. We've talked about Isoma privately a few times and um, my only experience has been with uh, their spindle-mounted microscopes. Uh, one I have for an HSK 25 interface for the Pyramid Nano uh, is really good. It's about a 30 times magnification. And um, for a lot of the work I do, uh, sometimes it's critical to line up on a very small hole, something that's you know far too small to probe, a hole that's maybe 0.5 millimeters in diameter or on an edge that's also difficult to probe, maybe it's in an awkward spot. And I was looking at getting a spindle microscope and first thing you sort of think about well is how difficult is it to get a video microscope and get an hsk25 interface and sort of lego them together um but i quickly realized that's uh it's actually far cheaper (laughs) to just buy the baked in product that's um that's actually accurate as well so i got this isoma uh, spindle mic microscope and it's absolutely fantastic i i couldn't do a lot of jobs that I have done in the past um, without it. And that sort of led me down to look at all the other stuff. And um, we mentioned the WS11 before. They have a pretty nifty um, optical measuring as well as uh, inspection, uh, like in-process grinding inspection system for the WS11, which I thought was pretty cool. Yeah, that's how they kind of came to uh, my attention. I was looking for in-process inspection cameras for the CNC grinder. And I don't think theirs is quite a perfect slam dunk match for what I want to do. Um, but they're really the only people that have like a baked-in solution for that. Everything else is going to be mm. kind of piece it together yourself. But um, they uh, even to have one of their manual uh, scopes with a right-angle viewfinder i think could be Mm. useful behind the grinding wheel just for touching off inside of a slot or something like that and uh really nice quality really nice lens quality um so yeah if you're looking for optical measuring in small formats check out isoma now i should mention they do have a competitor um (laughs) and they compete it wouldn't be fair if we just mentioned them but their competitor is marcel orbert i believe i'm pronouncing that semi right and many of the products that uh, Isoma has, uh, Marcel or Bert or MA, 
I guess I'll shorten it from my um, posterity, they sort of uh, counterpart as well. Now, the one thing that Isoma seems to have a better grip on is um, having like a, a slightly more uh, machine-specific or um, in-process-specific set of uh, in, like vision equipment, I guess, because they do digital as well as analog equipment. Whereas uh, Marcel Orbert, I think at least, has originated from the watchmaking industry and a lot of those uh, scopes are watchmaking specific. And uh, yeah, they actually have some nice uh, toolmakers microscopes as well. I was surprised to see that. Like they offer the full digital Kian style, you know, inspection systems, but they still have a manual microscope, which I think a lot of companies have kind of shifted away from. Uh, another obscure Swiss metrology company is Kuhn's or Kuhn's, I think. Uh, I really like these guys. Yeah, tell us how you t- tell us how you found out because you introduced uh, them to me. I was looking for an alternative squareness gauge, so I used the uh, the Squaremaster, um, and I just wanted to see what else was out there before I bought mine. And I stumbled across these guys, and they have an interesting approach to how they do their square gauge, which is it's a combination of uh, a vacuum bearing and a granite knee square. And uh, the sled the indicator rides on essentially vacuums to this piece of granite. And it has just enough slip that you can jog it up and down the granite by hand, but it's sucked to the granite, so it's mapping that granite's kinematics as it travels up and down and uh, i thought that was pretty clever uh and then i got to look at a lot of their other products and they just do some really interesting stuff with that concept uh like a granite beam that you can run an indicator on for for checking flatness or straightness and uh they even make a a sled like if you have a granite table that the side is lapped as well as the top uh, you could you could use utilize that with one of their sleds and and check straightness and flatness in one sweep uh, by by running this kind of ninety degree corner on the edge of your granite table and I'd never seen anything like that before and I thought it was really really clever um, Swiss prices uh, <laughs> <laughs> certainly expensive but they they make some really cool setups. Uh, and then they also have some interesting aluminum gauges for checking kinematics on five-axis machines. Um, I'm guessing they're aluminum for the sake of as you tilt over, it doesn't doesn't have as much weight to distort the gauge. Uh, but uh, yeah, it allows you to check how straight and flat the axes are and how square they are to one another. So really cool stuff. I'm not sure how much of a need there is for that stuff with lasers these days. Mm. And I, you know, I'm not sure which where one becomes better than the other. But uh. yeah, the the machine tool geometry checking equipment they make is really just like super nice to look at. Um, the rail check they have on their website, and you you really should if you're listening, you really should go to their website and scroll through their products. Lots of beautiful photos and. Um, just, yeah, just nice, nice for the eyes. Uh, but their rail check is a nice concept where you have five LVDTs that are running against a master sort of, um, 
uh, rail, I guess that's as, as, yeah, that's probably the best way to describe it. Um, sort of like a column on a, on a CMM and those five LVDTs feed back into a computer and you can get a really accurate measurement um, as you sweep an axis uh, as to the condition of the axis, the pitch, the yaw, the, the roll, as well as the straightness um, of that axis. So it's less for uh, sort of, I mean, this system specifically is less for uh, measuring incremental movements something as as uh, as something like an XL eighty Renishaw uh, laser system would be measuring, but rather the condition, the sort of um, geometric accuracy of each axis. Um, I also, yeah, I also sort of peeked onto the aluminium. Um, I thought that was really interesting, and they're they're really leveraging two properties of the aluminium um, alongside, obviously, the weight. Uh, that doesn't distort as much, but the temperature sort of stability of aluminium, which is sort of counterintuitive. But if you have a very stable temperature, um, it, it, it's a big benefit to have uh, something that can acclimatize really quickly to the environment. So you don't have to wait hours and hours and hours to, um, to have your gauge uh, acclimatized to the machine tool that you're inspecting and part of the sort of a repertoire is measuring calibration service. So I can assume these guys are going around all, all through Switzerland and calibrating these machines. But they also hard anodize all these aluminium um, uh, gauges and references. And I wouldn't be surprised if they grind the anodization. That's something I used to have to do. Oh, really? That was always a little, yeah, that was always a little nerve wracking. Um, we were doing it on gauges for the tire industry. Ah. So uh, a lot of tires get put onto artificial rims and then spun up to speed, and then they're using lasers to check runout, mm-hmm. both axially and radio- or, uh, radially. And uh, we would build gauges with like a set amount of two millimeters runout both directions and to calibrate the laser system. But uh, like they really were specific about how accurate that needed to be and uh so we'd have to grind the anodizing to get them into spec Mm. it's uh it's nerve-wracking you don't want to grind through the anodizing (laughs) yeah you don't have much like maybe 15 microns or so 20 microns yeah generally i think this stuff we were we were seeing an anodizing buildup of one and a half thousandths so that's like what uh 30 some microns 30 microns okay 35 um per diameter mm-hmm. so yeah i mean it, it, you were really just kind of anodizing it into size and then dusting it down a little i've seen um some good youtube videos of our favorite uh home shop machinists doing that at precision instrument company for their, for oh, their yeah. air bearings they um i'm not actually sure what part of the air bearing or even if it's part of an air bearing but they they had some nice videos of them uh flat spin grinding the anodization of some aluminium parts. But yeah, it's a, it's a, a good way to make something, I think. Yeah, give Kunz a check and just kind of... I always like looking at companies like this because it, it jogs the mind. Um, kind of, I don't know, lets you see different ways of doing things. Mm. Like I would not have thought if you need a precision square to make it out of aluminum, and these guys have. And I, I'm always curious to see mines like that. But... Uh, 
your your new mill, it's made in some portion out of aluminum for the very same reasons, isn't it? Yes. Uh, from what I understand, um, there's a bunch of reasons why they chose aluminum for the machine frame. Uh, well, it's actually the the motion components of the machine frame, so the axis guideways as well as the um, the, the block structures and the column and the uh, spindle housing and all those parts are made from aluminium because it, it's far easier to temperature control. If you've got cast iron, for example, you need to pump a lot more energy into it or I guess it depends on how you see the energy equation, but you have to work a lot harder to equalize the entire entire frame of the machine now it should be pretty specific that the machine is on a granite frame um, and all these axis components are aluminium that are rinding on the on the granite frame Um, but you also notice a lot less distortion so if you are cooling one area of the aluminium it's going to take a a far smaller amount of time for the other end let's say like 500 millimeters away to reach the same temperature and so um, you can be quite nifty with your how you space coolant channels and you can um, sort of use that to your advantage. And I think one, one more aspect to that is you can build a very stiff frame um, and not have it weigh a lot. Uh, so you can get a much more dynamic machine. And that plays into sort of the philosophy behind a lot of these high-speed machining centers where you're not necessarily taking a massive cut but rather you care about the dynamics of the machine and how accurately it can go around a corner, for example. Uh, so the Micro Vario and Pro are welded aluminium, and then the Micro HD is a cast aluminium frame. Um, so yeah, that's I'm looking forward. It's only four weeks away, but I'm looking forward to seeing all the nifty details behind it. Are the shims also aluminium? <laughs> I'll let I'll let you know. <laughs> um, anyway, on on the topic of machine tools, uh, there's and actually on my, the Micro HD, uh, there's another Swiss metrology company that I got introduced uh, to by Marvin, which is Etalon. Now I actually heard of Etalon far earlier. Uh, you might be familiar with their indicating micrometers. I think you have one, Adam. I have a nice set. <laughs> yeah. Um, I never use them anymore. <laughs> I bought made, I bought Quantum mics from Utoyo, and I find them to be a better solution. Well, in the days before Quantum mics, um, I guess you had to use something like a <clears throat> Etalon indicating micrometer. And Etalon got absorbed by um, Hexagon, and now they're not making micrometers anymore, but they're making. Uh, Tools for inspecting machine geometry, uh, primarily catered to OEMs. And one tidbit is that before you take uh, acceptance, so the pre-acceptance of a high-end machine tool, you often get a report of the geometric accuracy of each of the axes. And for our uh, Micro HD, we got a very comprehensive report that was uh, sort of printed out from a bunch of different... um, measurement uh, methods some was uh, like the kgm from heidenhain and some were by this uh, edelon product called alinical 
Now, the Linical is, uh, I think, 20 plus, maybe 21 laser interferometers that are set up to a aluminium frame and that all feed into a computer and you jog the machine around in a sort of a predefined pathway with a set of mirrors in the spindle and you get an extremely accurate uh, sort of image of what these axes are doing in, in 3D space. Uh, so it's quite different from something like a Renishaw XL80 where you're just jogging from uh, jogging one axis in five millimeter increments and seeing how uh, accurate the axis is linearly. You're in one setup measuring all of those things uh, that define the geometric axis, the pitch, the, all six degrees of freedom really. Um, and I thought this was a really, really neat setup and I've never seen one before. So if you if you want to see how this all looks like, go to the Etalon website and you can type in etalonproducts.com and go to the Linical and have a look at their uh, laser calibration. One thing I found interesting looking at their website is they're calibrating a wire EDM, which usually have like a smooth finish stainless steel tank. Mm. And they've put some kind of black almost looks like an outdoor carpet on the walls of the tank. And the only thing I can think is like, they're trying to reduce the light bouncing off the sides of the tank and messing with. And uh, so I I found that really kind of funny that that's uh, an issue they could face with the system (laughs) that they have to worry about light reflections. All the light bouncing around and hitting people in the eye. Yep. Um, in one of their pictures, you can see a, it looks like a workshop or uh, shop floor CMM getting calibrated as well. And that picture is a really good explanation of um, the frame. And each one of those uh, sort of yellow fiber optic cables is a, is a laser interferometer. Um, yeah, the, the other thing that Edelon make that is also really interesting is sort of like a field version of the same concept uh, except it's just one laser interferometer on a on a two ball swivel so you put one ball swivel on your work table and one in the spindle and that allows you to especially for a five axis machine have uh, calibration or an image at the very least of what the rotary axis axes are doing the tilt as well as the turn as well as all of your linear axes and um, that's a much more compact system and something that you can sort of ship out to field installs or services. Uh, and that's called the uh, laser bar, the Ethelon laser bar. Yeah, and so that's kind of where I was. I would love to talk to people that do this for a living and kind of suss out where something like the laser makes more sense than the, the fixed gauge like a Coons or you still see some companies using granite to you know check axial alignment. And I, I, I'd be interesting to see what the strengths and weaknesses of each are. Um, if it's just that there isn't, the laser's better, the industry's just been slow to adopt, or if there is still a reason to use fixed gauges for checking stuff like that. And uh, the final um, little Swiss, obscure Swiss metrology company that I'll throw in is a company called Cary, or Cari, I guess, uh, some, some Swiss might call it. Uh, and they're sort of an ancient metrology company. They're, they made everything from gauge blocks to um, pin gauges to ring gauges. 
but now they mainly focus on pin gauges and uh, sort of bench micrometers. Um, so I actually have one of their uh, quite old bench micrometers um, made in the in the seventies. And the one thing I really like about their bench micrometers, and you can sort of see the modern version on their website, uh, which is carry.swiss, but the old version is that the casting is very reminiscent of like a art deco, almost uh, very rounded, filleted, um, organic form. Oof, that is purple. <laughs> They're very purple now, yeah. Um and the other thing that's really impressive is the quality of, of their mechanical bench micrometers. And each of the pivot members, for example, of the rack and pinion sort of setup uh, in, the, in the reduction mechanism, each, each one of those pivot members is jeweled. So there's a jewel bearing. And all the sliding elements, um, sometimes you have like a sort of a finger sliding up against a, a rack, uh, they're also jeweled and they've got like a ruby against hardened steel interface. And when you sort of take this thing apart, it's as good, if not better than a really nice Swiss watch or Australian watch. And um, for production, those uh, those gauges are extremely handy because often they come with like a one micron um, graduation with really big spacings uh, and sometimes like a plus or minus 20 micron complete range. So you can instantly tell what's happening with the parts that you're loading on and off um, from something like a, a, a sliding head lathe making, you know, hundreds and hundreds of parts. But uh, now they just uh, make a digital version with an LVDT and sort of call it a day. So if you ever see one of those mechanical bench micrometers, don't hesitate to pick them up. They're they can be quite expensive, but uh, sometimes at like flea auctions, they're, they're reasonably cheap. Yeah, um, and that's what I used to use my Edelon indicating mic for, that sort of stuff, uh, grinding pins and such. Um, but yeah, largely I've gotten away from doing round stuff. And and for what little I do anymore, it's easier to grab the Quantum mic, but I've uh, never really got to play with the carry mics. They look very, very well built. Though. All right, for this episode's precision problem, Josh and I both had some uh, unique challenges in the workshop, and we're going to get into them. Should I go first, Josh? Yeah, you go first. Tell us about your new aquarium. (laughs) (laughs) So winter is upon us, and uh, they're near the end of fall. I kind of knew I wanted to do something to kind of stabilize some of the temperature issues I would be seeing. And so the goal with the CNC grinder was to always basically not have to make offsets. I want to punch in a size and have it make apart that thickness. And for the most part, it does that uh, well under a tenth of an inch. I can go an entire week without making an offset. But as we get into colder temperature, I might have to bump it up a tenth or two in the morning. And I wanted to avoid that. And so, again, looking at professional instruments, how they do things, they usually have a light bulb on a thermostat underneath the machine. And just a 100-watt bulb is enough to kind of keep the cold off the casting. But then they also heat the coolant. 
And so I just kind of took an incremental approach and I thought, okay, what's a cheap way to heat the coolant? And it turns out aquarium heaters uh, are really, really economical. Uh, and so I was able to get a 200 watt aquarium heater for $40 and it works quite well, uh, regulates the temperature to within half a degree, it seems. Um, the, the only issue I have is I have a weir style tank, meaning it has these, these bats and different sections of the tank. Um, and so the largest is where I have the heater. And so the first two sections of the tank don't get heated, um, just by kind of being all in the same metal box. They're not exactly cold, but they are like a degree or two cooler. And so all I do there in the morning is I bypass the machine and circulate the coolant in the tank for two minutes. And uh, then it kind of all reaches a homogeneous temperature. And doing that, I, I have coolant that's within a degree or two of the air temperature. And uh, so for about $40, I was able to circumvent a lot of the issues I see in the wintertime with holding size. I, I didn't even have to do the, the frame warming thing, and I'm back to not having to make any offsets outside of diamond wear. Industry 4.0, you've automated precision. <laughs> yeah. Well, no, I don't oh, have it linked okay. to my smartphone yet. So. Did you find that the slab inter interfa interfaces and influences the, the coolant tank? Uh, yeah. Um, you know, it's an older building. It doesn't have an insulated floor slab. And I specifically put the machine away from outside walls. It's near the middle of mm. the building. Um, but still, slabs are usually, you know, 50-ish degrees. You know, they're 10 to 15 mm -hmm. cool degrees cooler than the room. And so that's what I was fighting more so in the winter. And um, the only issue I have now is my, my cabinets for all my grind equipment are near an outside wall. And so everything that's on the bench, my thermometer mm. currently says it's 68 and a half degrees. And so it's right where I want it temperature wise, but that's also in the middle of the room height wise. Um, but things inside the cabinet aren't having that air circulate around them and mm. they tend to be a little bit cold. And so right now the, this, the problem solving is if I know I'm going to be using a certain fixture, I get it out the night before and just leave it on the bench top. Um, mm. And sometimes it doesn't even matter. We're talking like a few degrees cold. Um, but like my sign fixture, I'll leave it out the night mm. before. I don't want any issues with it being too cold. So, But yeah, winter can be a, a bit of a struggle holding size. And <laughs> I'm happy to say it has not been this year. That's good to hear. Uh, temperature is a really tricky thing to master. Uh, and it often requires, like, it, I don't think you can do it, or, like, master temperature properly in your shop unless you've gone through an entire season and felt how the surroundings of the shop, like, yeah. react. And um, Yeah, this is really the, f the mm. first winter with this machine. We didn't have it in place until early spring last year. So, yeah, I haven't haven't really felt how it reacts to like a negative mm. zero degree day outside and um so very pleased just solved the coolant issue and otherwise it's been flawless what about um your other external walls like do you have a garage door or something like that i have a garage door and i keep the machines well away from it and that's just kind of like um right now it's a bit of a catch-all but 
I have uh, a lot of my electrical equipment, like the transformers and phase converters, are all near there, which kind of works out because they all generate heat, but they're also by... It's not a leaky garage door. It's insulated. It has good lip seals. Mm. But it's very thin insulation compared to the walls. So it is mm-hmm. the biggest liability in terms of heat retention in the shop. So to have mm-hmm. all the heat generating stuff like the transformers next to it kind of equals that out. I also have my oil barrels for cutting oil next to it. So the the transformers mm. radiate heat onto the oil <laughs> barrels and I have this nice thermal battery. That's a new spin on oil heater, right? Yeah. <laughs> well, yeah, we've got a quite a large garage door, and uh, especially in the summer months, in the morning, the sun beats on it, and it's six meters high by like I don't know, maybe like four meters wide, and it turns into a grill pretty much. So Oof. anything a meter off, you can really feel it radiating onto you, and um, yeah, you just quickly learn to do all the sort of slightly more precision work in the afternoon once the sun's passed over and it's uh, sort of not hitting that side of the factory. Um, Yeah. I really look forward to being able to build a shop around precision thermal characteristics. Mm. Um, And, you know, that's a a goal for me one day. All right, what was your precision problem? Um, My precision problem uh, sort of dates back a little bit but uh, sort of came into the fore more recently when we reintroduced the process of scribing. Now, our nano is um, slightly unique in the sense that it's got a fixed ROA adapter or chuck in the Z-axis of the machine. So it's um, it's, imagine like a sinker EDM, except that you've got a uh, ROA in a milling machine on the, on, the, on the column. And so what that allows you to do is very rigidly, extremely rigidly attach a static tool to um, your Z-axis. And so then you've more or less created a very fancy shaper um, or a planer. And so uh, Rolex, who originally commissioned this machine, used that uh, attachment or the shaping attachment, you could call it, to do guilloche or guilloshage for um, their watch dials, which is a fancy way of saying they were scribing grooves in their watch dials um, with uh, monocrystalline diamond. Now, about, I want to say, nine months ago, we sort of did that same process except in titanium, and we used a combination of PCD as well as uh, solid carbide, and we made a little holder and insert and so on. And that's how we did the set of dials for the NH3. We did a sort of a a very classic pattern. And the whole reason why we're playing around with it now is because we're in the R&D phase for the next series of watches. Um, And we're trying to figure out patterns that can only be done with a CNC machine. Um, And we're trying to figure out where the limits are of this shaping method. And so we did a couple of test cuts and we made some extremely small features. Um, but really the, the precision problem, it wasn't actually in the, in the process. We sort of figured that out. It was in shaping and grinding and lapping the tool. So one of the things that we really wanted to do was impart less stress into the material uh, during the shaping process. Um, 
and be able to, at the same time, do much thinner dials. And you quickly realize that the angle of the V of the tool um, determines how deep you need to go to create a specific pattern. So if you can imagine uh, a uh -huh. 90 degree V, uh, you have to go quite deep to form um, a p yes, width. exactly, width. Whereas if you have a V that's 170 degrees uh, wide, so it's basically flat, you only have to go 10 microns or so deep to create a very wide pattern. So you get an exaggerated look of topography, even though there isn't any. Absolutely. Exactly. And so your eye does some funny tricks. and I was, I was wondering why you use such a uh, obtuse angle on your insert. It, it looks like a lathe insert, correct? Or it is. You have your turned sideways? Yeah. Okay. We use like a DCGT or something like that sideways. So you end up with uh, like 135 degrees. Um, but we quickly found out that even that was too steep of an angle. So we had to go even further. But it, it's surprisingly tricky to sort of lap something in so it's not only 170, like the actual angle isn't so critical, but the centering of the angle becomes more and more critical. Like where that um, uh, insert lies in terms of tilt, like is that corner uh, right in the center of the angle? Oh, let me rephrase. Actually, are the two small angles that you create on the left and right side of the insert, are they the same or is one side basically flat and the other side's like 10 degrees in the case of 170 degrees. And so you have to play around with getting that tilt of, of that very, very flat angle right so that the pattern you generate looks right. Otherwise, you get sort of like a lopsided V. Gotcha. Like sharpening a drill. Like sharpening a drill. Yeah, exactly. So both flutes end up cutting. Um, I didn't do the work. James did the work and he did a fantastic job. Um, and he did it all by hand and sort of uh, in a feedback loop with the key ants, um, created, created a tool that ended up doing the job. But what was really interesting is that we ended up um, being able to cut features that are about, uh, they ended up in theory being about seven microns tall. Um, so like the peak to valley, I guess, is, is what I'm talking about. And at mm -hmm. seven microns, um, you're start, starting to get to the um, territory of microstructures being formed by diamond turning lathes. And the optical effects that you can get with that feature size are sort of difficult to even describe or take videos or photos of. And that's really the look that we're going for with this ne next watch dial, at least in theory. So that was my uh, precision problem, and um, yeah. <laughs> one one thing I was curious: how are you, if you don't mind sharing, how are you locating the work offset of the call it your second spindle, your fixed tool mm. holder, to the work? Is that um, you know that obviously doesn't go through the, the laser probe? Is mm -hmm. that just kind of a manual offset? Well, I could tell you, but I'd have to kill you. <laughs> no i'm kidding um it, it's, it's actually extremely rudimental so um i bet somewhere in the in the heidenheim control there is that offset of the center of the aroa to the center of the spindle but 
the way we design the holder and the way we're lapping the insert that doesn't really help us that much because it might be offset mm. by the time it gets to the actual cutting edge. So what, what we did was we um, initially, uh, the first time we even set the whole process up, we got a, um, like a, uh, like a ground tip, almost like a dead center. We put it in the C-axis of the row and make, made sure it's running true. You indicate that so it's your zero on your spindle. You move over your tool in the fixed holder and with a video microscope, you align it just by eye. And that gets you close enough. Eh. What, what you're creating is ultimately a feature for the eye. Yes. So to align it by eye isn't all that crazy. No, no. Um, I... I assume you're probably within 10 microns of the virtual cutting edge and for the very basic aesthetic patterns we're creating that's all you need um yeah i've done some visual alignment to set work offsets in the mori we actually covered mm -hmm. it in a mm -hmm. previous episode and yeah, it's, it's actually surprisingly if you have the magnification it's surprisingly accurate it always feels like i'm um sharing a dirty secret when I say something like that. It's like, oh, you didn't use a dial indicator. <laughs> like, no, I just did it by eye. <laughs> yeah, yeah, I, I know what you mean. It, it, sometimes there has to be a high-tech explanation uh, to everything. So yeah. I, I guessed. <laughs> the Z is a bit trickier to offset. And the, you, like, I, the tip of the tool is so razor sharp. It needs to be to take those small cuts. You can't really touch it off on anything. Um, and with paper, there is a little bit of give and it's the whole feedback loop of using the MPG and it's just not right. Um, so you end, up, you end up just running a program and sort of stepping it down in the tool offset until you start creating a cut and that's good enough. Uh, that, spindle isn't, uh, that spindle isn't electrically isolated, is it? Since it doesn't have ceramic bearings. No, it's not. I was going to say just stick a, uh, a multimeter on it and check for continuity yeah that would but yeah, yeah that wouldn't work maybe i could use a setup uh like you had with your ceramic gauge block yeah and before <laughs> before i got my uh before i got my blum laser i had to set tools micro tools at least that way neanderthal <laughs> hey it was really accurate <laughs> yeah you'll put bloom out of a out of a market segment if you keep doing that <laughs> yeah well, I'm I'm glad you were able to share with us how you did that. I was uh, I was in awe. It's a very beautiful end result of the process. Thank you. It's um. I didn't create it. I'm just using it. So it's my, it's not really mine to hoard. Uh, feels wrong to just keep it all to myself. So I sus I suspect nobody in the industry told you how they did it though. Oh I, no! I imagine you had to do a lot of uh, figuring. Well, yeah, the, the, the guilloche. Um, for those that don't know, it's like really driven by um, like uh, um, like handcraft or artisanal beauty. Um, it's extremely labor intensive. Uh, so like a dial, for example, with maybe two or three guilloche elements might take north of 12 or 13 hours to make. Heck, could, could take a whole week. Um, and you're one cut away from scrapping the entire dial. And often they're made in gold and stuff or silver at the very least. Um, so there's a lot of value add in the collector's mindset, except uh, what people don't tell you is that a very, very large, a dis disconcertingly large portion of the dials, 
that have guilloche elements are not done by hand. They're done either by like a coining process or um, uh, in the way I'm doing it, which is like a CNC guilloche. Well, I think it's great that you're trying it. Um, it's really, really cool to see, and I'm, I'm happy you're able to share everything with it. Thanks, and uh, thank you all for listening to this episode of the Precision Microcast. It's, um, it's been great to share with you all of our precision problems as well as uh, the nifty little Swiss metrology companies and uh, the enigma of the tool room.